Welcome to the podcast that inspires the American dream through hard work and adventure. Our wide range of guests will give you a unique insight into their crafts, professions, and experiences. So sit back, enjoy, and have a laugh. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Free Range American Podcast. Well, we're live. Either way, we're live. So this is uh, three, two, one. But either way, we've been live for a minute. Welcome, oh. Free Range American. Uh, we were what we were talking about earlier was Black Rifle Coffee has the perfect uh, COVID nineteen social distancing quarantine facility. We got really lucky uh, here a couple years ago. Excuse me. We got lucky a couple years ago, and we leased twelve hundred acres for close to nothing, literally for close to nothing because it just wasn't being utilized. And it's a ranch house. It's a time capsule from 1965, basically. The, a lot of the former Apollo missions, some of the astronauts had come up there and done R&R. It was a hunting wow. retreat. So I, I just got here yesterday. Logan's been out there for, I think, the last three weeks, right? Yeah, last three weeks. I've been building it up a little bit, sustaining, improving working on the range, working on uh, how to get a garden in there where we can put that up. You know, we want to figure out a way to, uh, you know, if it were to get so much worse, the one single location we all go to. Oh yeah. I think that's all all of our dreams is to have that place, the the off the grid place, uh, regardless of what, uh, what happens. Yeah. And Uh, then, you know, it is super cool to like continue the, the personnel that has been out there. It was the Apollo astronauts went out there to hunt and then Doolittle's Raiders used to have their reunions out there every year as well. Oh really? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Doolittle. Are you like the Doolittle guys? Are you kidding me? The Raiders. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, Like fuck off. Like fuck off. That's cool. That's wild. You guys continue the tradition. Amazing. Amazing. Well, and we let, like we've, we've let, some of uh, special operations units that we know that we're not only friendly with, but uh, we've got kind of a built-in process with. They've come out and used it. So we just, we've just we been super fortunate. I brought my family down. I was just telling these guys earlier. I brought my family down. We got, we got here yesterday. We took three days to drive down from Utah. Even though they say non-essential travel is prohibited, uh, I, I do feel that it was essential for – the company for me to travel down here because we've got a lot of content that we have to get done. We sounds have- like it sounds essential to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so my girls this morning, I took them out fishing this morning, jumped in the Humvee, drove down to the river and my, my six year old caught like three largemouth bass, like wham, wham, wham off these big worms. Awesome. I pulled a crawdad. There was a crawdad in one of them and you could just see the, the 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 pinchers sticking out of the largemouth bass and i pulled one out with my leatherman like kids are my 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 two girls are just completely activated right now in this space whereas before we were downtown salt lake our our backyard is is the size of a posted stamp Hmm. uh they can't play with their their friends. You, you're having a hard time explaining to them why. This place is going to be such a, a welcomed relief, and honestly, we're, we're really, really fortunate to have this. 
awesome. Uh, I know that most people are not in this circumstance, so it's definitely not me trying to gloat. It's it's just I know that I'm fortunate, and we keep pinching ourselves because we're so lucky. Yeah, so, I know. That's what we're doing. What yeah. are you doing up there? No, I mean, we're hunkering down. Know. Yeah, we're hunkering down up here with the family. But, uh, you know, you, I mean, you have a place, physical location you can go. But, um, uh, you know, a lot of people, it, it's just about being prepared in some way, shape, or form, whatever right. way is, uh, I don't know, is comfortable to them based on their past experience, what their expectations of the future are, whatever that is, whatever allows them to free up bandwidth to focus on adapting to the changing environment like that's whatever that is whether it's like three days of food and maybe a little water whether it's a water filter and a barbecue whether who knows what it is for people but uh but having that so that they can then adapt and focus their energies where it needs to be is important so for us that's luckily we have some freezers full of uh of elk and right. and all that sort of thing so we're good there we have water i've just been kind of a uh a guy that likes to be prepared since i was born for whatever reason <laughs> so uh you know now it's all you know anyway i just i've always been that way so, um, and for, for a lot of people, it's like, okay, do I have a, do I have our first aid kit? What's in that thing? Well, even more important is, well, knowing how to use what's in there, you knowing how to use that trauma kit, understanding a tourniquet, understanding what they don't have to go to the hospital for. If they don't want to take their kid or just slice their finger open down and expose them to COVID-19 yeah. at the hospital. Hey, we can we suture that up here. Can we use some, some, uh, uh, super glue in there, you know, whatever. Um, so I think the most important thing for people now is to just take a breath and to take some notes on if they felt ill prepared for what's right. happened over the last couple of weeks and maybe for what's ahead to take notes and then more importantly to act on those in the future. So whether it's having a place to go like you do or whether it's having a few things in their car in case they break down somewhere right. and have to survive in a snowstorm or whatever it is uh, or having some food, some water, some medical supplies, maybe a firearm and more importantly, knowing how to use it uh, right. in the house. Like what are those things that made you uncomfortable over this last week? We've been handed a tremendous opportunity to be able to take these notes and maybe be a little more self-reliant and self-sufficient moving forward as individuals, families, neighborhoods, communities, and as a country. Yeah, I think regardless, our society is going to be completely changed after this, this time period, especially our country with the amount of numbers that we're seeing. Everybody is going to have a, a new life path after this. Yeah, no, it's definitely going to take people are taking stock of their, yeah. their situation and what they can what they thought they could rely on government for. I mean, we're all self-reliant people. I mean, if we wouldn't be here today, if we didn't have ancestors that were self-reliant, self-sufficient, good at hunting, good at fighting, uh, we wouldn't be here and have this opportunity to take a breath and be more prepared going forward. So I uh, know you're absolutely right. It's gonna, things are things are definitely going to change and hopefully it's uh, it's for the better. Hopefully people will will uh, take that breath and make some changes and be understand. I mean, I've gotten so many people have had so many people reach out to me either that uh, want to buy a firearm in California or have a friend who wants to buy a firearm in California. And all of a sudden they don't they can't realize that, I mean, they're, they're surprised they can't just hand their friend one or else it's some sort of a felony or misdemeanor or whatever it is for handing someone a firearm in California that's a friend and having them walk 20 yards away from you. Now it's a, you know, you didn't do your universal background check and they don't quite understand what they were voting for or not paying attention to over the last few years. Uh, so hopefully it's a wake-up call for, for them as well. Well, the, the funny thing is like, you guys hit on a couple interesting points, which you know, right now when you're taking notes and I think you're taking stock – in what you need to be doing, right? And I, I've thought about this for years, and obviously with my history with you know, the art of self-reliance, whether it's our professional background, because we all have similar professional backgrounds, and working and living in austere, hostile regions 
has prepared me, I think, psychologically for this event. And more importantly, that's just the way that we live our lives. Most of us are would be deemed essentially preppers, I think. We don't kind of wave the flag around with the tinfoil hat and things like that, but we build in redundancy. So we build in, you know, primary alternate contingency and emergency within the facility in Salt Lake. Uh, I've got a, you know, my, my, my facility out there, I've got a shipping container. I've got X amount of food, X amount of water. We've got, you know, generators and fuel and things like that. That's just something that I've built in. Even when I didn't have any money, even when we didn't have any money, my wife has always grown a, grown a garden. We've always typically had, ch- had chickens for the majority of our marriage. Uh, so we've grown our own vegetables. We've had our own chickens. You know, I hunt, you know, obviously you guys hunt too. This is just kind of our, it's a hobby. And before it was a, a very definitively, this was a hobby, right? So We'd go out, we'd do some gardening, we'd be able to grow some tomatoes and some peppers and, you know, kale and things like that. And it's kind of cool. It's fun, right? And it's really cool for the kids. The kids love it. One of my favorite things to do with my daughters was uh, I would sing this song. I would go out and start flipping these rocks in the spring in our backyard, and they would just be covered in bugs and, uh, the like, these big nasty red bugs and centipedes and you'd be flipping rocks and boards in the backyard for the chickens and the chickens would just go to town on these bugs and the kids loved watching it and it's such a unique experience with the kids for them to be able to to look at you know the, the animals that they have in their backyard which they they truly don't look at them as food but they understand where their eggs come from every morning you can interact on you know, my daughter's responsibilities were to feed the chickens, to make sure they had water and things like that. So building in, you don't have to live on a farm. We lived in downtown Salt Lake across from the busiest park in the city with one of the, the largest homeless populations as well. It wasn't as if we were living in an affluent neighborhood in Salt Lake. We lived in probably the worst, one of the worst neighborhoods in Salt Lake. We still had a garden. We still had chickens. I still hunted. I didn't have, we didn't have a lot of money. I was growing the company. I, I mean, I still wouldn't consider myself to be wealthy whatsoever, but we didn't have disposable income to put into things like this. It wasn't as if we were having the chickens because we needed them either. It was just one of those things that we, we kind of wanted to build into our lives. And now we know how to do all those things. Yeah. Right. So we've got freezers full of wild game. We can plug chickens into our lives at any point in time. We can grow gardens. We can do all these things. The kids love it, so they're not freaked out by this, the, the, the pandemic. And there's really no difference in our lives other than we're just not interacting with people as much as we used to a month ago. And it, yeah. it's just we've embraced it. We've moved heavy into more of the self-reliance aspect of things. So when you guys were talking about the self-reliance thing, I'm like, I think of it too as an opportunity just to be super positive and plugged in into my family because that's when my, that's when they need me to be a leader, right? They need me to step in and be a leader. And so, you know, psycho- psychology is more contagious than fucking COVID-19. So if I'm a big negative bag of shit and I'm coming home and I can't like plan and plug in and get ready for 
to lead the family and, and not as if like we're, we're, I'm talking about in the, the traditional like biblical leadership sense of, you know, I'm the man and you came from my rib type scenario. It's a, I have to be a leader at this time when, when we're, when our chips are down and the family needs me, I've got to be able to plug in with all my assets and with all this positivity and endurance that I have be able to get up every morning supercharged and ready to fucking hit the hit the ground running with the kids because they'll look back on this and they won't be negatively scarred for the rest of their lives they'll understand what's happened but they're going to be more prepared oh yeah no absolutely it's a great opportunity for kids to look to you as an example and then they'll in turn be that way for their kids going forward i mean this is a they'll remember this time in their life for sure and they'll remember if mom and dad were prepared uh if they were scared if they were worried or if they were helping others if they were prepared they had that base level of preparedness that allowed them then to adapt to business or to help a neighbor or to help the community they'll take all that in it's uh, Mm -hmm. it will not be lost on uh, on the kids of this generation as to how their parents in particular responded to this because they're catching the news you know we you know, try to shield them a little bit from it so it's not on all the time, but you know, they're catching bits and pieces here and there. They're plugged in on their devices. They're hearing what their friends are saying, and then they're looking to us as parents. Yeah. And uh, so this is going to have a tremendous impact on them going forward. So it's up to us really as leaders of our families to, uh, well, one, it's, it's our responsibility, I think, to, uh, to protect, know how to protect our families, uh, to provide for our families, to be that good example for them, to make them uh, good, productive citizens going forward. So this is a time to, to shape them. It's a, it's a tremendous opportunity, although it's, it's hard, hard to say that because so many people are suffering. So many people are yes. prepared, uh, both with food, water, financially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the financial thing can come anytime. It could be anytime. you could lose your job. Yeah. Just doesn't have to be a terrorist attack or a pandemic or uh, an earthquake or a tsunami. It can just be you losing your job and looking for another one for a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months, whatever it takes uh, to get you back in there. Uh, so having that financial security built in along with water and shelter and food and air and that base level of the pyramid that we need to to move forward and to build on. Well, but finances is a part of that too. Is it, yeah. Do you have a month of stuff of savings ready to go? Is it all in a bank? Should maybe mm-hmm. some of it be at home just in case or not? What are you comfortable with as an individual, as a family, uh, for you and your family? Do you need that boat or do you need to put that money somewhere uh, in case something happens so you have that foundation of financial security uh, regardless? of what happens out there in the world. You at least have a couple months there. So there's a lot people can take away from this. Yeah. I like, I like you using opportunity as a way to frame this up right now, because so much of the fat of life has been trimmed away, right? We're not traveling. We're not paying attention to a lot of the other things, the other people in our lives that we used to, because it was all trimmed away. So it's a matter of what are you doing with that opportunity? And are you paying attention towards the news all the time? Are you developing a negative mindset? It's like, this has been a awesome mental exercise because it's just like, there's so much things that you put to the side in before this happened. And what are you doing now? How are you improving your situation? How are you optimizing this opportunity? And just like we've been talking about, man, it's, it's almost been a return to like this, childhood invigoration to like, I want to do hobbies, the things that I've been putting off. I want to spend more time in the outdoors. I want to like pay more attention to myself and my finances and like really improve my situation with this opportunity of time that I have now. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Like Evan, you were saying the kids are out there catching the, uh, catching bass and all that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, my daughter's going to sleep outside in the snow tonight. So we just, uh, we, got, <laughs> we have the tent, we got all this stuff out Seriously? there. Yeah. So she's all set up and, and I was like, Hey, do you want to talk to somebody, this guy who, uh, spent a month living on a glacier in Alaska? And she's like, uh, no, I'm good dad. I'm like, all right. So yeah, she's going to go learn some lessons out there tonight, which is pretty sweet. We still have some snow. It's melting quick, but yeah, uh, still have some good snow out there. And uh, yeah, it's nice to have this backyard. The kids can uh, can go out and, and play in. But um, yeah, our next place, chickens. I mean, chickens have been on my list for so long in uh, in Coronado when we were there, and then when we came up here. But uh, the next place we go to, we'll have those chickens. I will get those chickens. Um, yeah, that's that's on the short list uh, for whatever reason. We we we. It doesn't fit here, but it will in the next place for sure. Yeah, and I think for me, when we when we think about the the leadership right now, and I and when I look at it, and I look at what is required for my own, you know, my, my family, and I think even just developing that mindset of understanding that one, you have to have a primary alternate contingency plan. To your point, it doesn't have to be a pandemic. I've been preparing for a recession for three and a half years, like psychologically, financially, preparing the company, understanding what we have to do, because just even the limited amount of essay that I have on the economy, I know that we're going to hit some flat, if not downturn. So I was ready for a recession before the pandemic set it in place, essentially, and that's, you know, not living beyond your means. And obviously, we, we, we know there are a lot of people out there that are living, you know, paycheck to paycheck. But I've lived paycheck to paycheck. I understand what that feels like, too. I also understand that even as you're living and working paycheck to paycheck, there are still things that you have to chop out of your life that you, you don't or can't have, right? So even if you're going to the store and buying a bottle or two of wine or, you know, a couple packs of smokes or whatever it is that you have, you have to chop away your vices because that's about having discipline and understanding how if you don't have your, you know, what is it? Uh, proper planning prevents piss poor performance, right? There you go. Nice. So if you don't have your shit in one sock now, and this is the time, right? And this was the conversation I was having with my wife, which was, this is actually the time where we earn our stripes as parents. Like, the last couple of years, we've we've gone through some ups and downs, but this is the time when you earn your stripes as a husband, as a father, you know, as a wife. This is the time, and and to include, this is the time when you earn your stripes as even a sibling or you know a son or a daughter. Like, how well are you taking care of your your family? And I think that that's where this this prior planning comes into place in this. This complacency, I think, that society has had where they think that nothing will happen, right? We're good. We've heard this narrative. It's America. Yeah. yeah. It's America. What do you expect? We've, we've heard this narrative for years where, you know, America is, you know, we're doing so well. We're, nothing's going to happen. We're, we're all good. Don't worry about it, right? And... It's a false narrative, and it dupes people into complacency. And actually, Logan brought this up a couple of days ago when we were talking on the phone. It reminds us of working in theater and working with people that get complacent and ultimately 
there's an issue psychologically with people wanting to take the easy road or they're too scared to deal with reality, so they dupe themselves into complacency. I think Americans for the last, uh, well, at least since the last economic downturn, right, since 2008, this happens in cycles of 10. We, we see it every fucking 10 years. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, September 11th, the downturn in the economy in 2008, 2009, and then we're seeing it again in 10 years. If you haven't prepared you, and, and that's part of it, right? It's kind of that self-aid, buddy-aid system. If you internally haven't prepared psychologically, physically, financially, it's going to be really hard for you to help your family in the way that your family needs. It's going to be really hard for you to help your community, right? It's these concentric circles of, of care and influence that we have to focus on. If you haven't done that, if you don't have your own internal house in order, it's going to be really, really fucking hard for you to do anything other than just stew on the on the on, on the existence of negativity, right? That 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 will be your single point focus, or scramble, like or scramble, scramble like oh geez, I did not prepare. What do I need to do now? And now you're focused on all right, food, water, this, oh, finances, uh, job, business, like all that stuff. Instead of just all right, take a breath. Okay, I know all this other stuff is taken care of. We got a couple months here. Uh, business is uh, is set up for a downturn for a few months. Okay, personally, we're set up to pay the bills for a few months. We have water. We have food. Okay, the kids are safe. We have stuff at home. We know medical. We have medical supplies. Uh, we have firearms. I know how to use them. My wife knows how to use how to use them. Okay, let's focus my energies here. Okay, how do we maximize our business right now and help others at the same time? How can we do the most amount of good right now uh, mm -hmm. while also uh, take, while also adapting to these changes? times uh, as a business. So uh, all that stuff you just talked about, it just allows you to tackle the problems at hand. Otherwise, you're just scrambling like a madman. Um, like yeah. I, I remember my, when I got some, uh, this N95 mask back in Coronado, um, like 10 years ago, 12 years ago. Uh, I remember my wife was like, why do you have those? Uh, like, why not? Why not? You got to be prepared. You know, so I have them for all the family. And then she, but she did raise her eyebrows when uh, uh, I brought in all the plastic um and duct tape you know yeah just in case you know <laughs> like, why not uh, but we also had the 55 gallon drum in the backyard that had right. the pump put goes on top of it so it's all set up to screw the pump into it so you can get water out and everything right. in california of course you're thinking earthquakes um but you know you just gotta you just gotta do those things those are just that's basic stuff that you need to take care of uh as a citizen so that it doesn't become the responsibility of your neighbor your friends the community the government to come in and help you and waste resources taking care of something that should have been taken care of and prepared for long ago and once again it's not about being a prepper or being paranoid you know going shadow to shadow doing you know ninja moves from shadow to shadow just ready to go at any given time right. you know it's just hey condition yellow be aware be prepared be aware basics Basic yeah, that stuff. was beaten into us in the school of infantry, like complacency kills. Complacency kills. And now that's the rest of the country, the rest of the world is getting a taste of that. When if you don't take this thing seriously, if you don't take proper precautions, it will kill you, literally. And so things that we've been experiencing for, for years, the rest of the world is getting a taste of that. And there there is a lot of negativity floating around that with, you know, you all you would expect that. But I think people like us, um, you know, we almost get a, a mental boost out of it in a lot of ways because when you are prepared and you do have those boxes, checks, it's almost like this little thing, like you feel good about being prepared. There was um, 
the one of the first nights out at the ranch, we got a big deep freezer out there, filled it up, and you know it's running off of you know the '60s electrical system, and the entire power went out to the house, and immediately my brain, within split seconds, I had identified in my head the number of bags of ice in the house, how many I would need to keep all of that meat cold for a certain period of time, and where all the coolers were in and around the ranch. The power immediately came back on, but within that time frame, my brain had processed all this stuff in order to maintain survivability. And so it, one of those things when situations like that happen for me, like, I, like I'm almost proud that I, I run through these mental exercises and my brain still is highly functioning under stress or duress, even though it was just, you know, something very, very small like that, the way my brain thinks and processes stuff. And that was just because of our background and what we've done in our past lives. Yeah, it's very natural. Very, I think it's very natural to want to be prepared, very natural right. to want to know how to hunt and provide for your family, very natural to want to know how to fight to protect your family, whether it's empty hands or knives or guns, whatever it is. Uh, it's very natural to want to do those things because those are all the basics that allow you then to do everything else. So, uh, so for me, it's, uh, it's just a, a normal thing that I couldn't not do, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. just, it's just a part of it. I mean, it's in everybody's DNA because you're alive, but it's right. been suppressed in so many people, uh, just because they haven't had, they haven't been tested by a crucible. They haven't gone through the great depression. They didn't have to go, uh, save the world in world war two and storm yeah. the beaches at Normandy. They didn't have to do those things. Um, and it's been fairly easy going. Uh, and a lot of the things yeah. that, uh, the problems that we have have been created by us. So whether you, Oh, you had a tough time because of alcohol or drugs or whatever else. Like there's an element of, uh, you know, responsibility that comes with that, that, you know, it, it wasn't that it wasn't Nazi Germany coming to power that did that to you. Right. Uh, you know, it wasn't the dust bowl that forced you to go and, and move and move West, trying to find work with your family or going into these camps that looked like uh, refugee camps, essentially yeah. back in the day. Um, you know, some of that stuff is, uh, is, is going to take some responsibility for it, take accountability for it, take a breath, change it and move forward. Um, but, but we haven't really been tested as a country in a long time. And we'll see how this, see how this plays out in the coming months. Uh, but imagine, and for most people, it's a great time. Like we talked about, take those notes, take action on those things, get that medical training, get that training yeah. with a firearm, get those basics covered, get control your finances. Okay. Bam. And, uh, and move and move forward. So it's a, uh, this is the, this is the time to do that. But imagine now, imagine an attack by, let's say, let's say even a state actor, uh, mm -hmm. let's say all of a sudden somebody cancels somebody, a state actor goes in yeah. cyber attack. All of a sudden you can't order something online because your credit cards don't work. Well, now what? Okay, that's one thing. That's a very easy, that could very possibly happen and will probably very, happen very at some possibly. point in the next 50 years. Right. Uh, there is that. Now we, let's throw in an earthquake in California. Mm -hmm. uh, let's throw in a hurricane somewhere. Let's throw in a tsunami somewhere. Let's throw in just a, let's say, uh, a non-state actor terrorist attack somewhere uh, or even an attack that fails. And what does that do? That still spirals the economy down even farther. Uh, they don't even have to succeed. They just have, it has to be the threat of or an attempt multiple attempts that don't even right. succeed. So you put yeah. all those on top of one another, uh, like right now, this is just, this is not, take notes, take notes, yeah. use this to be prepared, be a good example for your family so that when those other things may, well, when those other things happen, then you can use your bandwidth to effectively counter them and adapt. That's the important part of right now. I doubt this will be the last time in our lifetime that our generation goes through something like this. No, and I, I think this is just this is this is just a uh, I, I really think this is just the beginning of what we're going to be dealing with 
you know, not only COVID, but quite possibly even more issues, right? Because we now when we look at this, this is a, a tax on the healthcare system. Uh, but it's going to completely change the way that we interact with one another over the course of the next year and year, some change depending, even if they, if they, if they, and they will eventually find a solution for this, right? Something that works, that's scalable. Uh, and that might take, you know, a year, 18 months, 24 months, but we have to get used to normal, right? This is like, we have to get used to this normal state. And I think, people have to psychologically, even just when we look at preparing for this or being a, a, a prepper for a lack of a better term, it's really just being prepared. But if you have a bunch of these things just checked off on your list of checking these things off. So, you know, I have a firearm, I'm proficient in the use, my family's proficient in the use of firearm, I've got ammo, I've got, you know, food, I've got water, I've got my financial stability. You're just kind of checking those things off, putting them off to the side because you know they're done, right? Mm-hmm. So now I can focus on big picture items. And this is like what I used to always tell people when I was training courses was you want to slide as many of your what I call subtasks into your unconsciously competent bucket. Meaning you just, something happens, you react. And the way that you react, it's on autopilot. So if you're unconsciously competent at a bunch of different skills, it allows you to look at the entire tactical scenario. It allows you to actually continue to maintain your macro look, which is what you actually need. Because if you're fumbling with a reload, instead of looking out ahead of how this entire tactical situation is unfolding, you're going to get sucked into this much space, this one per square inch, for too many seconds, and those seconds could be the most valuable seconds you'll need in your life. So don't let a reload fucking kill you, right? So that was the whole, you know, pitch, and it was obviously a much longer pitch. But I look at my life like that. I slide a bunch of these things off so I don't have to think about them. I've got food, I've got water, I've got the ability to, you know, you know, call my friends on, you know, a satellite when I say, you know, do I have a sat phone? Yes, I do. Do I have a, you know, a, a spot? Yes, so I can text and things like that. So I can communicate. I've got water. I've got food. I've got my finances in order. So if something happens, I can plug in and be a leader to my family when they need me emotionally. They need me emotionally. But if I'm scrambling trying to find a bunch of shit, and my three-year-old, my six-year-old, my wife, they need emotional stability and they need psychological stability, which is actually more important than some of those things. I won't be able to do that because I'm trying to scramble and, and sort out the things that I should have been doing over the course of the last year, two years, three years, 10 years, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's where complacency has come in and they've duped people into believing that they don't actually have to do all these small things because the government will take care of you. Okay, well, I hope everybody gets to tell every one of their friends that has used that argument. Over the last decade when we've been at cocktail parties and everywhere else and people have said you guys are a little bit fucking wonky in the head, right? You guys have been there. I know you've, I know you've all oh, yes. been there where they're like, nah, my cousin's kind of a prepper and he's kind of, you know, oh my gosh, you know. Yeah, I don't watch football. I don't watch football. I don't watch baseball. I don't play golf. You know what I do? I like to go to the range. You know, I like, I like to hunt. I've incorporated those things into my life in a way that I've made them recreation 
But in times like this, it's allowed me to kind of look at things and go, now I can, I can elevate the circumstance psychologically and be the rock that my family, my company, my community might need. They can lean the ladder against that wall because I'm not worried about whether or not I'm finding food or proficient in a firearm or one of the laundry lists of tasks that we, we should have been proficient at before this whole thing went down. I think it is. I think it's a good narrative and a good list for people, as you say, to start making now. It's a good reality check right now for people to chop away all their white noise out of their lives and go, I really didn't need that to begin with. So you know what? I'm going to make the changes in my life right now. So if something like this happens again, I can be that, that person. I'm going to make those changes right now so I can be that person today, tomorrow, next year. And then if something else like this happens and I'm down, maybe I've prepared my family for this in a better way too so they can build me up if I'm psychologically or physically incapable of, of accomplishing the task. It's so interesting to me how this has made me think of my previous profession so much. Mm-hmm. It really, I've, I've had to really kind of look at my previous profession a lot and even more so now adapt the things that I used to do, but more so with my, with my family, right? Like more so with my family. Have you seen that? Like, do you think about your, you know, your time in the Navy, your experiences as a leader in the Navy? Do you see yourself and pulling a lot of those skills that you've, you've learned in times like this and then cross pollinating that through your family? I think so, but I also think I had it before the right. military. I was just kind of innately a leader from the beginning and uh, innately wanted to be prepared, was drawn to the wilderness early on. Um, so all those things weren't uh, really because I you know, went to boot camp and got yelled at. I went to SEAL training and right. got yelled at. Uh, maybe the mission planning piece of it yeah. and the being a, and testing all of that mm-hmm. and being able to, to test whether, hey, uh, with bullets flying, with chaos out there, with multiple problems, to solve. Um, could I prioritize those effectively under fire, under stress when it counted, when people were depending on me and, uh, and my decisions could mean life or death. And sometimes even if you make the right ones, it thinks that, yeah. as you both know, can totally spiral out of control. And sometimes when you make the wrong ones, things work out. Okay. As we all know, but, uh, <laughs> it's just better to be lucky than good. <laughs> you know, that's just a wild, it's a wild card, you know, but, uh, there's, yeah, but being able to, to be tested that, to that way. And, and, uh, and so then, you know, you're not waiting for that crucible. Like, yeah, there will be, further more crucibles you will get knocked down uh, and you have to get back up and keep moving forward that's just that's just life but to have gone through that already and to be like ah okay i can take a breath uh i was tested yeah i trained i felt like i was there beforehand but then when war actually came after september 11th and you do get tested uh and you do come out on the other side of that and you learn whatever lessons you need to and you get back up if you are knocked down and you move forward hopefully wiser based on that experience um so i think it's more in that it's, it's just a part of the of the overall experience that uh, lets me tap back into all of that pre Navy Navy training experience in combat, and then moving on with my life afterward, hopefully in a positive direction. But maintaining that level of preparedness as I go forward and using all of it now 
when we're being tested as a as a country. So right. I think it all kind of morphs together. It wasn't necessarily, you know, because I took a class in the military or right. whatever else. It was just like a, a the, the culmination of all of that, of a lifetime's worth of experience. Um, kind of like I didn't wake up one morning and be like, ah, you know, I think I'm going to be an author. Hey, can you make money of that? Like, that's not how it went. I read books from when I was a little kid all the way up through today because my mom was a librarian and I was always just, I was just right. we grew up with this love of books. Um, and so I had that foundation. So much like we're talking about here in the situation we're in now, all of us have this foundation from which to build because we're naturally self-reliant. We tested it in the military. We continued on in a positive way afterward um, and maintained that level of preparedness, always wanting to get better at everything we do, whether it's shooting tactically or it's hunting with bow with rifle, whatever it may be, uh, we always want to do it better as we move forward and then pass those lessons along to our kids so that they can do it better than we did it. That was always right. my goal as a leader in the military was for all my guys to do the job better than I was doing it for them. Like that's why I wanted to share things that I could do better or share things that I messed up with them. So, and they're going to mess up too here, here and there, but, and that's natural. You just want to learn from it, but you also want to pass that along to the guys coming up behind you. Um, that's our responsibility as leaders to do that. And so that was a big part of my time in the military was doing everything I could to make sure that those guys behind me were doing it better for their guys. than I was able to do it for them based on just how we interacted and how I shared with them as I moved along. So, um, yeah, just a long way of, uh, long way of saying, be prepared. Boy Scout motto 1907. Well, it's a mental exercise, right? It was something that we would always do is war games, something. What's the worst case scenario that could yep. possibly happen and creatively think how everything could go wrong and the worst shit hit the fan situation. And it's something I love about your first two books is like, you're like, oh my God, like, this is an individual dealing with the worst case scenario and how he's handling that. And it's so interesting to see what comes in across the pages as the situation develops. It's obviously yeah. something you've spent a lot of time thinking about. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And I tried to, oh, there it is. Look at that. Yeah. And I try to weave that, uh, that experience into those pages. So when the reader's reading it, it really resonates. It's not just, uh, like if I was just a normal author and I went to talk to, to you guys and I interviewed you and talked to you about your experience in the Marines and your experience in the army. And then afterward, and then I took that and I, it ran through all my filters of my life experience. And then I applied it to a fictional narrative. Um, yeah, there's, there's a few things that may or may not get lost in translation and that's, and that's okay. You're writing a story. But what I'm bringing to it is is that authenticity, which is, you know, it's, we know it's an overused word, but it, it makes it resonate because the feelings and emotions behind all of that stuff uh, are things that I felt at some point along the line or something I learned along the line or someone taught me because they learned it in blood and they passed it along to me so right. I wouldn't have to learn it in blood. Uh, and so I'm very passionate about all of that and it comes across, I think, I think that's why it resonated with people and why it resonated with Simon & Schuster who sees, sees thousands of these things every year um, is because of right. that, because I just put so much of myself into those pages and it's, uh, yeah, it seems to, be, seems to be working out and resonating with people. So uh, before we get into the, the, the book, which I have a lot of questions around the, the book, but you went from a, a very definitive management and leadership career in the Navy where you were around uh, hundreds of guys and you were in charge of how many people directly responsible for you, know, you and your leadership. Like how many guys at the height of your career, how many guys were you responsible for? 
So I'll break it down between Garrison at home yeah. and then and then downrange. So downrange yeah. is about 300 or so uh, yeah. in Basra at the end. And it was more Army SF than it was SEALs uh, right. down there at the time. Which explains uh, why you're way fucking cool. <laughs> well, I, I always had a great experience with SF guys you know, for whatever reason, both in the Philippines and then also my last deployment in Iraq. Um, but yeah, more more than than I had SEALs uh, at outstations. And we were, you know, just aggregate. We were, uh, they were at outstations and, and, uh, and I was in Basra. Yeah, but uh, yeah, about 300 down there. And then in Garrison, I think it buds. We had like, I want to say 800 students and six and 200 staff at any given time wow. as the, as the OPSO. So it's like a, for those listening, like a COO of a corporation, right. um, but much like that. I mean, when you're, a, when you're an OPSO in the military, as you guys know, like everybody else is doing all the work. You're just kind of doing some guidance. You're moving some things around. You're taking some hits from above, you know, and that sort of thing. But, uh, but really you have the, especially in that scenario, you have all the buds and structures that are out there doing the day-to-day -day thing um, and, and running that training. Uh, but then as an XO, I forget how many I had as an XO, which is still garrison, but less people because right. you don't have all those students like you do in buds. So probably yeah. 300 again, somewhere in there. Um, but really I look at my kind of small unit tactical leadership phases, whether it was being in charge of myself as a brand new guy, enlisted guy, whether it was my second platoon in charge of, oh, now one guy, that's the right. new guy. And then I'm the primary comms and intel and sniper guy. Right. Uh, and then maybe as a team leader where I had eight, and then as yeah. a platoon commander where I had 40, and then when I had troop commander where I had, you know, whatever, 300 when we went down range. Um, yeah. So it's all, it, it, you know, built on on itself, each one of those different different uh, experiences. Um, but yeah, at the height, about 300 or so down range. Well, and now you live a different existence, right? So now you have a totally different profession and your 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 individually your your workflow your cadence everything has changed now was that a big adjustment for you to go from you know managing and leading hundreds of men to uh, an author's existence was that was that a tough transition not for me. Uh, and I think it's because I knew so early on that I wanted right. to do it. So it wasn't something I just woke up one morning and decided to do. And it wasn't right. just something that uh, as I was getting near the end of my time in the military that I had to figure out. Uh, mm -hmm. So that part was done. Like I'd figured it out at age seven or whatever it was. Like I knew right. I was going to be, I knew I was going to be sealed at age seven. And it was right around that same time that I knew one day I would write in this genre, probably around fifth grade, sixth grade, because that's when I started reading the books that uh, my parents were reading at the time, the Tom Clancy's and Nelson DeMille's and yeah. David Morrell's, AJ Quinnell, like JC Pollock, Mark Olden, all these guys in the 80s who had protagonists that had back. Usually they were SF guys, but usually- Yeah, had... yeah, Mac Bowen, bro. That's right. Bam. That's yeah. right. Sergeant Mercy, the executioner. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was reading all those things. I was reading all the Mac Bowen books in between a time when a new David Morrell novel would come out, because they weren't yeah. on a year cadence back then. Right. I think it was Stephen King that really started that, that one a year type thing. Before it was like, you didn't know when a book was coming out. It's like, is it going to be in a year, two years, two and a half years? But now with Stephen King and Clive Cussler, those are the guys that really want a year. Boom. So now that's kind of the, the cadence that you're on as an author. Um, but for me, it was, you know, it was a, when you're in, obviously you have to be solely focused on the task at hand. You have to yeah. be solely focused on the guys because that's what you owe them. That's what you owe their families. That's what you owe the mission, the country. Um, but now it's all about my family. That pendulum has swung back towards the family and uh, his military, it was all the way on this side. It was not on the family and they knew that. They knew it had to be that way, but they also knew it wasn't forever. I was very clear on that, that uh, I was gonna do my tactical time. And then when that time came to an end, it was time to go. And I had a couple more years left, a few more years left in the Navy after I got back from my last deployment where I would tactically be leading guys on the battlefield. Um, so I could take that breath 
and I could prepare for that transition and I could see what other guys were doing who maybe weren't making that transition very well. They weren't that successful because they couldn't leave that past behind. They didn't use it as uh, as a part of them going forward. They lived back there in what they had done in the past, if that makes sense. Those are two mm -hmm. distinctly different ways to live and use your background. Um, you can stay back there and live and dwell or you can use it just like you would in any other career or anything that you do. It, that's your background, that's experience. And then you have to move forward from that into a positive direction. That's the, that's the only way to do it. So for me, it's, it was nice uh, to not be in charge of a bunch of people anymore because uh, now I can take care of the family and concentrate on writing. Uh, if you're in charge of somebody, you're leading, like you're still, you guys are still leading people, um, you, you're responsible for all of them. Uh, and for me, like I'm not, I don't have anybody uh, except my family. And it's nice because for so long, the team was my sole focus and they got everything. I got it. My family mm -hmm. didn't get it. They didn't get anything. My, my guys got it all. Um, so now it's the exact opposite. My wife might not answer that. She might see me in here you know, doing, <laughs> doing podcasts and writing and like yeah, adapting yeah. and doing all this stuff. But really the focus is on the family now. Uh, so for me, the bat, the, the, it was not that difficult of a transition because I was looking forward to it. Um, I had prepped for it during that last year. I started writing because as you guys know, when you drop your papers in the military, you go in the separate pile and now it's time to go to dental and go to medical and take this class and get right out of this program and that program and wait in line. And you're just not getting ready to go down range anymore. You're in that right. separate pile. And uh, essentially you're almost out of the military and you're just administratively trying to figure it out. Uh, and so that I, I got to, to take that time and use it productively and start writing and create that first story. Um, so, so yeah, I guess that's a long way of saying that I, I, I loved what I did in the past, but I absolutely, I'm, I'm very happy that it's in the past, uh, and it was a good, solid run while it lasted. Uh, I'm glad I was in when September 11th happened. I'm glad I was just just shy of being a new guy, uh, second deployment, and so I had a tiny, tiny bit of back of, uh, of uh, experience that, you know, it didn't really. It wasn't real. I mean, it wasn't real world combat, but uh, that morphed very quickly, uh, and it was nice to have a little bit of background, a little taste of that post Vietnam tail end. We've got a couple guys that had yeah, been in yeah. Vietnam still when I showed up at the team. They were quite old, uh, and, like warrant officer guys. They'd done everything they could, you know, just to yeah. stay in. Uh, they gotten out for a little bit, gotten back, and then uh, you know we're warrant officers now, and uh, creeping up on like thirty five years or whatever it whatever it was for those guys. So caught the tail end of that. Got to hear about some things in the nineties. Got to get some stories from people that have been in Mogadishu or on the the, uh, the tarmac in Panama. Uh, but that was it. Those were just flashpoints. And then, bam, September 11th, and then sustained combat from then on. So uh, it, was a, it was a good run, but I'm also glad that uh, now I'm out and moving forward with the family. Do you remember when you began the process of developing this character of Reese that has molded into these, this series? Yep. So it's, I didn't like write down stories while I was in or think about writing. I just knew that one day I would do it. It was just kind of like, just like before the military, uh, I'm going to run cross country. I'm going to do pull-ups. I'm going to do this and that because I know that I'm going into the military. Right. Uh, so I didn't like do anything other than just know that I was going to write one day. Uh, so during that last, by that last year and a half that I was in, uh, when my job became to get out, uh, that then I started actually putting pen to paper, writing down all these different ideas. And it just made sense to use someone as a protagonist that had a background that I could, that was similar to mine. So prior enlisted seal sniper becomes an officer is at that point when he's not going to tactically lead guys on the battlefield anymore. So he's decided to get out and take care of his family. And then that's when disaster strikes. So, um, so really I started developing the character, uh, during that last year, but it wasn't 
I didn't have to interview too many people in order to develop the character. Um, I just got to really re revisit. So, yeah, so I got to kind of revisit some of the things that I was involved with downrange and take those feelings and emotions and, uh, and apply them to this fictional narrative. Uh, so I really, it became a very therapeutic process, much more so than I thought at the outset. At the outset, I thought, okay, I'm writing down all these different ideas, let's say seven or eight different ideas. I chose the one I was going to go with because I thought it was the most primal, the most visceral, the most hard hitting, and the right. most likely to get noticed by a New York publisher. Um, and uh, so I knew I was going with that one. And then it made sense to just go. It became much more therapeutic, though. It was more than just, oh, it's a great story. People can escape into these pages. It became like, oh, I remember that in, uh, in, the, in Baghdad in 2006 when this happened. Or I remember Ramadi 2005 here in Missoula at this time or, or uh, my first stop in Afghanistan or whatever it was. I got to like revisit all, all those and then draw things from them and put them into this narrative, which made it made taking all those experiences, which were I, I got very lucky on all those things, uh, but uh, also just channel them in a positive way. And, uh, and use them to move forward um, in, in a way that I've been dreaming about since I was a little kid. So, uh, so yeah, I didn't really have to do too much on that on that front. And it was fun to develop the other characters and uh, to take the people, the parts and pieces of people that I knew, even people I really like. I took a couple parts of them and made them into bad guys. Um, so, uh, and then I made a lot of people that I really did not like, and I made them bad guys. Uh, so, uh, so there's some bureaucrats that, uh, in, in the military that uh, that became characters in the story. I'm sure the Simon & Schuster lawyers don't like to hear me saying that. Uh, but uh, but once again, very therapeutic to, to write, especially when I was writing about some of those type of people that are kind of you know politicians in uniform. Yeah, and I think yeah. that'll be a common theme through all the novels are those people who are who look at it as a career rather than a profession and uh, kind of like the profession of arms. That's why it's not called the right. career of arms. It's called the profession of arms. Uh, and same thing with this. I look at writing as a profession. Um, mm -hmm. And for some reason, psychologically for me, I'm just drawn towards things like that. Career sounds like you're working for someone else. And yeah, in the military, you're working for, for somebody else, but you're also working for your team, your country, your guys. So it's a little different, I think. But um, rather than going in for Corporation A, I'm going to start here and I'm going to work here. And if I work really hard, I can be, you know, whatever it is, that just doesn't appeal to me. I like the profession of writing. I love the profession of arms. And I love being able to combine those things, doing something that I love now on the outside. So um, I realize also that I'm a little bit of an outlier in that. I uh, identified very early what I wanted to do, both in the military and out, and then I stayed focused on those things throughout my entire life and was really never distracted by anything else. Yeah, it's very clear within your first two books, the authenticity of the character. Um, but it's also very clear you got a very good grasp on story development and character arc. Did you ever do any formal training when it comes to developing that? Or did you just take a crack at it? Yeah, so I did it by default. And by that, I mean, when I read all those guys I talked about growing up, but then with a mother who's a librarian, she introduced me to the work of someone named Joseph Campbell. Uh, and she did that, I remember the date, 1988, when he did a series of interviews with Bill Moyers on PBS. And Joseph Campbell wrote a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it's uh, during this series of interviews with Bill Moyers that they later turned into a, uh, a, a series of books um, called The Power of Myth. He talked about how all these different cultures that had never met one another had a similar mythology. They had a right. similar hero's journey. So you have this Chinese mythology, and then you have this Northern European mythology. You have some things in Africa. You have some Native American, First Nation, whatever uh, myths, and they're all very similar. And they start with a reluctant hero 
who goes on a journey. He meets someone along the way, a mentor, who gives him either a tool or some advice, some knowledge that helps him when he's tested in a crucible. And then he emerges from that transformed and usually comes back to the society, to the family from which he left and passes on his lessons to them. So it's all these different cultures had all those similar elements. And so by default, I saw that. And I really liked it at that age, even though I was fairly young, because he talked about how his work had influenced George Lucas and Star Wars. So as a little kid, I was like, oh, wow, very cool. Uh, and then he talked about Samurai and Bushido Code and all these things. And that was just fascinating to me even back then. Uh, so I then applied that just subconsciously to everything that I read since every other movie or TV show or series that I saw since that time. So uh, in reality, yes, that was my training. It wasn't formal, but all those guys who I read, those, those were my professors in the art of storytelling. And then Joseph Campbell gave it structure and allowed me to see, oh, this is why I like this book and not so much this one. Or this is why this movie worked and why this one didn't really work because I was right. applying what Joseph Campbell identified as this, what he calls the monolith, which is the, these mythologies across culture that all share these similar attributes and, uh, and applied them. So that was very much at the forefront of my mind when I started writing The Terminal List, uh, how to do that in a single novel, but then also knowing where I wanted it to go. And how do you apply that more broadly over a series of novels with the same characters? So uh, so, I, so very much so I you, thought about that. I continue to think about that today. You, you had that concept and mindset from the very beginning that this was going to be an ongoing series. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So kind of in the, in the same, the, all the, like the guys that I like to read today. So Daniel Silva, he has his Gabriel Alon character, you know, Brad Thor with Scott Harvath. You have uh, Vince Flynn with Mitch Rapp, who's now written by Kyle Mills. Um, so you have these stories. Clap Kessler, of course, did it, did it way back in the, in the seventies. Um, and unfortunately he just passed away a few weeks ago, but uh, he was going strong right up until the end. Uh, so I always knew that I would want to take a character. Uh, and I think it takes more than one book to really for an audience and a readership to develop a relationship. Cause that's what I really want. I want the audience, the readership, the reader who's sitting there to have a relationship with the main character to care about what happens to that character. So I knew that early on when I started developing the character, like you asked about earlier, I wanted him to be someone that you wanted to sit down and have a beer with. Like that's the guy you want to sit. I didn't want him to be somebody that was like, too tough for like uh, right. what what the public's idea of a special operator is. Uh, I wanted him to be human, and but I wanted him to be someone that could then flip the switch and wasn't just someone who stumbled into a situation that didn't have the background, the experience, the training uh, to then take care of things. I wanted him to be able to flip that switch and just go to work and take care of business. Um, kind of like now, I'm sure. I mean, it was you guys may have grown up and watched uh, watch Magnum. Everybody oh, yeah. loved Magnum. Girls loved Magnum. Guys loved Magnum. He was awesome. Uh, but then it's the first time in network television where the main character essentially murders someone in cold blood. And that's unarmed. That's the most important part. An unarmed uh, uh, antagonist. And it was, uh, I think it was third, third season. But uh, uh, did you see the sunrise this morning? And uh, just an amazing episode. So I always had kind of that guy, that that likable character that you want. Because everyone would have a beer with Magnum. Who wants to want to hang out on in Higgins Estate and have you know, Robin Masters Estate, have a beer? You know, there's chicks swimming out there in the in the water, whatever. He's I, in do, bar I don't Ferrari. remember that. He murdered somebody in cold blood? Uh, yeah, it was not murder. So... It is right. well. It is murder, but uh, so it was the guy from Vietnam that had them as prisoners of war. Yeah, um, they escaped, but while they're prisoners of war, they uh, they had TC chewing this gum that had a yeah. drug drug inside, so essentially brainwashing, so Manchurian Candidate type thing. Um, and so he comes back to activate 
TC uh, years later, years after the war. Right. Uh, and uh, and so anyway, at the end of that episode, um, he well during that it's a two parter, and he kills Magnum's buddy Mac. If you guys remember Mac, Magnum's oh, yeah. little little buddy blows up in the Ferrari, mm-hmm. and uh, at the end Magnum has his 1911 there, and the guy is a, he's a Russian, and he's mm-hmm. like you know you, you uh, I posted it. It gets like the most likes of anything that I post is this scene, and he has like one it's one minute long, and uh, the guy's like I know you, you know I had you as a prisoner of war in, in Vietnam. I know you better than you know yourself. You're not going to kill somebody in cold blood that doesn't have unarmed and uh, then he starts to walk away and uh magnum asks if he's do you see the sunrise this morning because mac was watching the sunrise every morning mm-hmm. up until that point and he says yes and magnum turns around and just boom but it stops like this oh, <laughs> it has the fire wow. coming out of the, Got the it. of the 1911 and then it freezes and goes totally silent is awesome absolutely awesome i'm gonna have to watch that now because oh, like yeah, i'm yeah. a huge magnum I, oh yeah oh yeah did you see the sunrise i'm sure you can get it anywhere um but yeah i think it's season three uh but i'll have to check on on that one just awesome awesome so anyway point being a little digression uh no, that's i wanted the uh yeah the character to be somebody like that that you just liked but then could also do something like that uh, because he had the training to do it but not only that he had the experience and he had nothing left to lose. And all those movies I watched growing up, they always had the voiceover that would say, he had nothing left to lose. But I always, <laughs> in my head, I was like, he always has something. Like, you could die. So I'm like, how do I take that? How do I make him already dead? Like Samurai, uh, Ancient Bushido Code, they go into, into battle thinking they were already dead because they thought that made them more effective, efficient warriors. Yeah. And I thought, how do you apply that to a modern day warrior? And so that's where the, the drugs come in. And that's where the, uh, the church hearings in the, uh, in the 70s come in where that uh, really oh, yeah. exposed a lot of the uh, abuses by certain elements of the federal government. Uh, and among those was testing human subjects mm-hmm. without, without their approval, essentially, without really knowing the risks involved. Uh, so it was just one of the things that came out of there. A lot came out of those hearings. But I thought, how do, what if someone didn't get that memo? We'll take that. I'll drop it into a modern day story that essentially is killing, has killed this guy. He knows he's dying, and now that frees him up. His family is dead. His guys are dead. It frees him up to then figure out this conspiracy and start taking these people off his list before he dies. Uh, right. He has to get through that list, and then I get to once again very therapeutic. Those people I didn't like before I was talking about. Well, right. I, I got I, I got to disembowel them. I got to blow <laughs> them up with SVS. I got to take them out with sniper shots. I got to do all these things that I can't do in real life because I'll go to jail. So it's once again very therapeutic on many levels. That, that's funny. So for listeners that might not have picked up one of your books, can you pick up any one of your books and start it and kind of get the context of what's happening? Do you have to read them in order? Kind of explain like your process and, and what order the books have been written in right now. Right. So I'm supposed to say that you can pick up any one and dive Got in. It. That's what the publisher wants you to, wants yep. you to say. They really okay. hope that I'll yep. say that, but it's very hard yeah, for yeah, me yeah, to yeah. do um, yeah. because uh, you want people to, to invest in the character early yeah. on, care about them, and then move on to the next book and the next. So uh, probably as I go further on in the series, it'll be less important to read the mm-hmm. early ones. Um, but in each of these novels, yeah, you explain what happened earlier so that people can kind of get, get a feel for it. But right. it's much better to start with that first one so that you invest in the character you understand that foundation where they came from and how they got to where they are today. So Terminalist is first, True Believer is second, which really is a journey of redemption 
violent redemption, I call it. And just like we talked about earlier, it's uh, it really explores someone that has to find that next mission, find that next purpose, just like all of us that leave, not just the military, but anything. If you're leaving professional sports, if, you're, if you have a divorce, if you, no matter what it is, like you're going to make transitions in life and you got to find that next purpose. And in this case, the main character needs to learn to live again. He needs to find that next mission. And so that second one continues that journey. And then the third one, this is the one I've wanted to write since sixth grade. When really? I read Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell, oh, which yeah. is a 1923 short story. Um, uh, this is the one. I knew that one day I'd write a novel that paid tribute to that, but that when I started, the characters weren't quite ready. The characters weren't developed enough to explore the dark side of man through the dynamic of Hunter and Hunted. But at this third one, they were ready. So uh, this has been a long time coming. I've been thinking about this for 30 plus years. And, uh, <laughs> and now I got to, finally got to do it. I went to, I forget if I told you this, but I went to uh, uh, just south of Siberia, Kamchatka Peninsula, Russia, uh -huh. to do research for this one. Uh, and the prior one, I went to Mozambique in South Africa and helped uh, train up an anti-poaching unit. Uh, so I got to interview these guys who had caught the tail end of the bush wars in the 90s. And then they'd gone, they'd come back. And now the government was like, oh, wow, we have these people that have uh, grown up hunting, tracking animals for, for food and uh, to survive. And now we have, they have a tactical capability because they've been at war at the end of these bush wars they've been tracking people tactically on the battlefield and now we have them back okay what are we going to do with them okay you know what let's make them part of the national police force and take those skills and essentially become csi so they got to take those skills from the bush and apply them to an urban environment and get much more into the psychology of tracking rather than just like tracking blood or something in an urban right. environment but getting in the head of the person they're tracking and then they kind of aged out of that and now they're being scooped up by mostly private organizations, but some government, governmental ones as well, uh, to uh, be part of anti-poaching units and help protect some of the last rhino or elephants on earth. So I did that. And all those guys wanted to tell me the story of Mozambique and South Africa and the bush wars and the Chinese influence in mining, illegal and legal, and how meat poaching pays, it plays into that because you have so many people working in these mines and all these other things. Uh, so I thought it was going to be the same when I got to Russia, uh, just south of Siberia. And I was, it took... Well, I shouldn't say that. it took me, uh, very quickly. I realized that for most of Russian history, if someone is asking you pointed questions, particularly of the kind that you would ask right. for a political thriller, uh, it, you weren't long for this earth. Uh, <laughs> you know, off to the gulag you went. So yeah. they were very hesitant to talk to me over there. And I was like, what? I'm writing a novel. And I think they still think I'm a spy. But I went over there and there's just some things you can't get from a Google search. And you have to go there and just to be able to add that local flavor into the pages of a novel. Right. Even though it's fiction, uh, like I went over there and I, I, uh, I knew there was going to be something in the, their snow machines are different. Their snow machines have one skid in the front because when they're going through that tundra, the taiga yeah. they call it. Uh, so it, they only have one skid to worry about in the front to catch a root system. Right. Uh, so instead of, instead of the two, so they have a yeah. single skid on the front. It was just super cool. So I knew there'd be things like that, that I'd, I'd be able to take and, and weave pick. into the storyline. Yeah. And I uh, see the vehicles that they have over there and the helicopters and fly around in an MI-8 and because they use that, like we use bush planes in Canada right. and Alaska, they use the MI-8s over there to get around. Uh, and then they have to they have stop, they have these little refueling places in the middle of nowhere. And all it is is like a dude and a little shack that's covered in dirt and mud, just insulation and a bunch of fuel. And that's it. And you land and you refuel and then off you go again. And these MI-8s that uh, I thought would be leaking everywhere, but uh, they were nice. They were really, really yeah. I was, which what, made me worried. What did you, you do? Like, what were you doing? Were it, was you... a, it was a bear hunt. 
He was a yeah. bear hunt. Yep. So I got into the, uh, into the back country with a guy that, uh, had been in the military and right. then worked for the government and then somehow yeah. had access to this military base in which to, to hunt brown right. bear. And it was, and yeah, so, so he was definitely a little hesitant to, uh, to talk to me. Um, but it, yeah, it was a crazy trip, crazy trip. Did you, uh, did you end up killing a bear? I did. Yep. yep. So I got a bear and, uh, How big? so I killed, well, I got two, okay. um, and one was by default. And right. the one by default was gigantic. Really? Uh, so mine was just mine was just normal. It was crazy. It was my first one. You're dealing with someone that doesn't even speak English, and it's like it's crazy. Um, but the second one, so my friend wounded it, and off it runs into this thick, thick stuff. Um, and in America, they probably wouldn't go. The guide would not prob- would probably not take you in there. Um, right. They would probably leave you back. They'd go in and uh, do what needed to be done, or maybe not. Maybe. It, makes it anyway we went in and i we had one rifle and my buddy was using it so we're in this little boat and this guy reaches down and he takes up this old like leather falling apart sack and he pulls out this shotgun stove barrel shotgun thing and uh, hands it to me and i'm like right what's rusty and i'm like it's like it reminded me of uh remember in road warrior at the end when he had he has yeah. his like thing and and all the shotguns aren't working it's like Right. Know, it's not working. Uh, so that that's I uh, put it together. You know, it's three pieces. Boom, put it together. Right. And uh, then he hands me two slugs, and I'm like, "What?" And I'm like, "You know, more." And he hands me two more. So I, <laughs> all right. So I load this thing. I've never shot it before. It's totally rusty. I see the Russian symbols on the side, and I'm like, "All right, I'm just hoping this is as reliable as an AK." And I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm going with that. Yes, I'm going with this. And uh, I've done so much training at FTW Ranch out in Texas with a double rifle. Yeah. In preparation for my Cape Buffalo hunt that I did a couple of years ago in Mozambique when I was researching True Believer, um, that it just felt very similar to the double rifle that I took took down to, took to Africa and got my Cape Buffalo with. So because I, I wanted to do an old school hunt in Africa, I did no optic, right. just total old school. Same way you would have done it 100 years ago, 120 yeah. years ago. And uh, so off we went into the into the thick stuff with uh, with just this rusty double barrel shotgun gun my buddy and the guide and uh we're just going through it's totally dark i've not been that turned on probably since ramadi 06 like i was like i was on and uh this thing about 15 feet away gets up and goes and the guy of course before that was like they never get on their hind legs you never see him stand up you won't see that well yeah 15 feet away this thing i'm like what so i just turn and just like about a person you know right in the chest and uh it takes it turns and and runs off um and then we went after a little more and heard a death bellow and then went in after it it was gigantic like uh, yeah how far did it run from the time that you shot it in the chest to when you heard the death bellow. So probably, when, how far was that? Probably another 30 yards or so, 30, 35 yards, somewhere in there. So not too far. Right. Um, enough where we locked, it was so thick where we lost sight yeah. of it. And then we're like, oh, geez, here we go again. And got online and we're moving forward. And then we saw just some some of the bushes kind of moving. And we're like, okay, he's in there. You know, and I, and I saw it, I heard it first. Uh, I'm like, what's up with my guide? Why isn't he seeing this stuff first? Um, but I like, saw, saw little bushes moving. I'm like, yeah, he is right in there. And so, and then he's like, you know what? I'm going to go sk- go around the other side and I'll scare him towards you. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Ivan, what? And uh, so I go around there and I actually, I take a knee 
and I'm like ready to go. And I'm, I'm like, okay, if he comes charging out, like I want to be down here, I think. Like, I don't know. It's my first bear hunt. And so I'm like, okay, if he comes charging out rather than being above it and like having it go off that skull, I'm going to get right. I'm going to get down low so I can take this shot, hopefully, right through right yeah. through the chest here, right in the mouth right. and both. Um, and then I heard the death bellow. So it, you know, he never got to scare it out after, towards me. Uh, so and then we went in after it and it was lying there dead and it was crazy big. Yeah. Yeah, like, like plus ten. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was serious. So what happens when you're when you're in Russia and you shoot a bear? What what happens when you're trying to get like you're trying to get the cape and everything back? Is was it relatively easy or? So it's still in process because this was just okay. in August. Um, yeah. But it was a lot. It wasn't as wild west as I thought. I thought over there really? you kind of do anything you wanted. Yeah. Uh, but no, not at all. They had you have you have permits. Uh, you have a certain number of bears that need to be taken out of these areas. It was kind of kind of like it is here in in the states. Very well regulated. Uh, you know, scientifically based. Because uh, it's a it's an industry for them now. They don't want to screw screw it up for the most part. I'm sure there's some people that don't operate right. that way. But the guy we were operating with was definitely by the book on all this right. stuff. Um, so yeah, just like you would in the States, um, he went to work and uh, it should be showing up here in the next couple months at some point. Um, yeah. How'd crazy. you find, how'd you find somebody like that? What, what was your, did you go to your internal network first and try mm-hmm. to figure out like who your your points of contact were? Did you just do a Google search like bear hunt Siberia? <laughs> nope. Nope, because a lot does pop up, surprisingly. But uh, because of the hunting operation in Lanai, Hawaii, that I'm a, mm-hmm. a part of, the Pineapple Brothers over there, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, yeah. really, I test, I check everything through John Burl at High Adventure Company, which is a company based out of uh, Atlanta. And right. their their only job really is to vet these hunting uh, operations uh, to make sure their clients have good experiences. So that's their job. Um, so I always check with him. But uh, but in this particular case, uh, it was a friend of mine who was going anyway. And I was, I was just starting to research and trying to figure out how to get over there. And then he's up, he has a house here in Park City. And he's like, oh, you want to go to Kamchatka? Well, I'm, I have a trip going and one of my friends just dropped out. We have an open space. I was like, no way. Are you wow. kidding me? Uh, so I'm like, I'm in. Those guys were all fishing. He's like, yeah. it's a fishing trip, but, I, but let me check if we can make it into a hunting trip. So, uh, so we did for, for him and for I and the rest of the guys. Uh, just uh, they, they fished, and it was crazy. Yeah, brown trout, and, and uh, it, was a, it was a great great experience for them. And then I had a crazy trip and uh, got a ton of information for the book and local flavor I could weave in and you know, the, the plants and the dirt and the fish and the animals and everything yeah. else that's over there that my protagonist has to deal with in this third novel. Uh, I got to experience firsthand so I could then weave that into the storyline. Yeah, it's it funny because you mentioned Pineapple Brothers and I was in Lanai a few months That's ago. That's right. And um, it was a great experience. Like the guides are awesome. Uh, we, You hooked me up with those guys when I went out there. I had, I had like a super small window, so I had five hours because uh, I'd promised my wife this is the first vacation I've ever taken, literally I've ever taken with my family. And... My buddy has a house out there, so we were trying to, you know, cut costs and get out there and have a good trip. And, and uh, I was, I was amazed at how much fun that was because when you look at the island, it's small to begin yeah. with, and then there are so many axes. You're like, dude, I can throw a rock and hit one of these in the head. And like, what? <laughs> this yeah. isn't going to be that hard. And uh, did you take a actually, bow? Yeah, I was only bow hunting. Uh-huh. I, 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 I'm really. I don't really do a lot of rifle hunting anymore because it's just not, um, it's not as challenging. It's not as fun for me. I like, I really like shooting my bow, mm-hmm. uh, and I like hunting with it. And I'd made some 
epic shots just like a few weeks prior to that with John and I had been down to the border of Mexico whitetail hunting. I'd made a 70-plus yard shot on a whitetail that was quartering away and, and just plugged it. Uh, double lung, just epic. So I was going into that with a lot of confidence. Nice. The Without going into the, the story, but I made another 70-yard shot on an axis out there through two trees and just had a, essentially a, a basketball-sized hoop that I had to put the arrow in. I put it in, but what I didn't account for was there was brush on the overhead, and at 70 yards, my arrow is kind of moving at a, at a fairly acute angle down. And so um, I just wasn't uh, – I, I tracked it for about three and a half hours, couldn't find it. Eventually, the, the guides and I called it off because we just – couldn't find any more blood and the, as you know the the dirt over there is red you're trying to you're trying yeah. to track blood that's red it's drying because i was out there before daylight came out but it is an incredible hunt i'll be back for sure like I, I the place is such an incredible place but the thing i want to do next time is spearfish nice because the the free diving out there is incredible the fishing is incredible the just Shooting in the 360-degree world out there underwater, I think, is probably going to be one of the coolest experiences. There's so many fish that, yeah. you know, as I was out there just snorkeling, and my buddy and I had taken his boat out, and we'd done a ton of just fishing and snorkeling and free diving. It was so much fun. It was so much fun. Like these big pelagic fish. He went down and shot a couple the there's just fish everywhere. It just seems like so. I'm I'm super stoked to get back out. I do have a bone to pick on on Savage Sun. Uh oh, just so you know, I do have a bone to pick. The, so the that cover is pretty incredible. Nice, right? nice. There you go. So I mean, you have all these different things. You've got the you and I, I recognize a few of these things, right? You've got the knock on PSE bow, yeah. got the Winkler uh, hatchet, yeah. you've got, you got a, quite a few different things. I, I couldn't help but kind of rotate the box <laughs> when I got it though. And I was kind of rotating it around and looking <laughs> everywhere for yeah. the black rifle coffee oh, mug. And I couldn't man. find the, the Dang like, it. out of all the things that you're going to get. Man, but I did, I, you know, I think I might have forgot, to, I, I forgot to put yellow stickies in yours um, because <laughs> no, no. There, there are two places in there that uh, where Black Raffle Coffee is mentioned. One is a mug and one is coffee in two separate plates. Did I put it in there? Yeah, you sent, you, sent me the, you sent me the stickies where it was at. Nice. And, uh, but it's such a cool box. Uh, awesome. And this, this, isn't a, this isn't a commercial for you whatsoever. Obviously, we've been friends for a long time. Uh, I've you're you're one of the most interesting and cool guys that we know so i i love this box so I, you and i had talked about it before but the whole loadout cards and things yeah. like that the, it, it just reminds me of those old it's it's a really upgraded version of those 80s novels that we talked about yeah. one of my favorite parts in one of mac bolin one of the books was it had his entire loadout Oh yeah. So as a kid, you're looking at these things. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is a 40 millimeter grenade launcher. This is so cool, <laughs> so cool. That's what I want. Yeah. Oh yeah. Why would you want that? Why would you want that? And my favorite part of this this book, like my favorite part, which I 
I took and then I blew up into a poster for my office is that <laughs> ladies hey. Hello, ladies hey hold the phone right yeah. now they they asked hey are you gonna have the beard for your tour for the first book i'm like well I, I guess not i guess i should probably clean up for an author tour type thing right and they're like okay so i took it without the without my beard and then of course life and everything else has been a full-on yeah. sprint so i've had a beard ever since so uh yeah no beard on that uh <laughs> no beard on that one, <laughs> no. but we might change it up for the next one. They're like, are you always going to have that beard? We might want to change that, uh, that up. So it's not as shocking to people when you show up in these bookstores, but yeah, uh, so that's we're just how it goes. A week out from, from this being available. How are you shifting to promote this thing with everything going on? Yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, you know, there was an option to, to move publication date. Um, and I was like, Nope, that's uh, you know, you guys understand it's not on brand, you know, we go. Yeah. We go, we got this date on the calendar. We are going. Yeah. This little thing is not. And also there's some things like independent bookstores need our help now. Like they don't need me to wait until August or October or whatever. Uh, When they're back running again, everything maybe is fine. They need help right now. And so I'm trying to do what I can to drive traffic towards independent bookstores. So I have this, uh, these things right here. These are um, little, uh, they call book plates. And uh, so they're limited edition ones that only that you can only get through these independent bookstores, Uh, no exceptions. So it's uh, so I'm trying to drive traffic. There's a lot of people that like book plates, and for this one is kind of unique. Uh, So I'm trying to send them towards these bookstores that have zero foot traffic right now. And uh, there it is. There's a sticker. Nice, like it, Mm -hmm. and like that looks similar. Looks similar right there. Yeah, very very similar. Look at that. Bam, love it. Yeah, look at that. Love it. But uh, so I'm trying to drive traffic to help them now when they need help. And then also I have this merch on the site and 100% of those profits, usually all the profits went to these veteran focused foundations that I have some sort of a touch point with, meaning it's not Mm -hmm. just like, oh, what's a good one? Oh, wounded warrior. Okay, let's put that on the site and look like we're doing something good. No, it's like I know people that started these things or I have friends, more importantly, that were helped by them. Uh, So there's a touch point there. Uh, So I I feel good about recommending them to people and then also funneling 100% of the profits from merch merchandise like this hat uh, towards those organizations. So, but with COVID-19, I switched that and until things are back on track as a country, everything's going to the Center for Disaster Philanthropy COVID-19 Response Fund. So it's really helping people that are on the front lines, people that are affected by it, but then people that are on the front lines that can't hunker down, that can't stay home. Uh, Those doctors, those nurses, those medical professionals, uh, firefighters, EMT, police that have to interact with a public, some of which 100% have COVID-19. So, yeah. uh, so for the, for the short term, hopefully short term, uh, all those profits, 100% of them go towards the, the COVID-19 response fund. So, um, so those are kind of some of the things I'm trying to do to I mean, launch a product in an, in uh, an appropriate way that also right. does some good during this time. And, you know, Simon & Schuster has never dealt with this before. All the publishing houses don't know. Yeah, people are, tra- are trapped at home, a lot of them, but there's also a lot of uncertainty. Do they want to spend that on a hardback? Are they going to hunker down and just hold on to things and only buy the essentials? Like no one, no one knows. So it's a very uncertain time, but for me it's like, all right, we're going. We're going in. People are looking forward to this. Yeah. They are home. They want. They uh, a lot of people have been looking forward to April fourteenth because there's a very dedicated fan base uh, to these novels, which is amazing. And uh, and so I'm not going to let them down. And I released the first six chapters early. Those are on the website. Uh, kind of prime people or get let them get them a head start if they're at home. And then uh, this thing's coming in hot April fourteenth. Audio, ebook, and hardback. So uh, I'm just trying to do as much good as I possibly can right. while launching this in a time uh, of national emergency and a time that is a very uncertain for a lot of people 
I started it on my road trip down here, so nice. I didn't bring the hardback. I actually, you gave me a paperback too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I the grabbed galley. that. I yeah. grabbed that on my way, literally on my way out the door. And uh, my wife was like, what? You're going to read a book? Because I, I, I haven't read a book. Literally, I have not read a book in, uh, I don't know probably two years. And when I say that, like I've read well, fiction pieces, but yeah, fiction, not, yeah. fiction, sorry, because I'm trying constantly to feed myself something that I'll need for the business. Uh, you know, mainly mm-hmm. around like operational, you know, efficiencies or management or something like this. But the thing that I'm, I'm super excited about is this is a, it, it's a great book to read which I don't know if, if the audience will understand what I'm saying when I say that, but this is a better read than it is, I think, would be an audiobook. I think both would be you know, for, for the individual. But I'm looking at this saying, I actually want to read this book. I want to read it. I want to turn the pages. I want to drink coffee and you know have the time with the, the book. And knowing you... Obviously, that's 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 a benefit. But even if I didn't know you, I would be super excited just to read this book. I don't know. Logan's shaking his head. He's Logan's been talking about this for like three weeks. Your name oh. came up the other day at a meeting. He's like, oh yeah. Oh fuck. Oh yeah. Oh man. I'm like, uh, thank you. I appreciate all the support. Thank you so Whoa. much. I sincerely well, appreciate I will it. I hear uh, Evan's sentiment on that. Uh, that it's better to read it. Uh, I did the. I read the first one and then I listened to the second one. Um, the, the individual you have reading it, like when he does a female's voice, <laughs> I can't help but it, laugh. It's hard if you're I a mean, dude to do a female really voice. I, just like, I mean, yeah, I, it breaks it up for me because I start giggling every time I hear him do the female voice. I know I'm it's, I think that's an issue time. with all. Yeah. I think it's an issue with all audiobook yeah. readers and probably same thing for a female audience for those female type books that have a female narrator who all of a sudden switches yeah. to a guy <laughs> voice when they do the guy. You know, probably similar, but probably more probably funnier when the dude tries to do a girl voice. It's just, you know, hey, <laughs> what are you going to do? It can ruin a book, right? It, it can ruin the audiobook for you. I've, I've, I've downloaded multiple versions. I, I started listening to uh, – I listen to all Hemingway's book, books nice. again like – over the last, I would say, two months. And uh, it can ruin books, and I'll find another audio version that's not so annoying. I'll yeah. do it all the time. Uh, and it's, it's truly interesting where you don't want the, the, the reader to ruin a book for you. So I don't even want the reader to ruin a book for me, especially this one, because uh. I, I'm super stoked for it. It's just like, it's it's eye candy, I guess. You know, it's, it's brain candy, eye candy, however you want to. It's it's creating that experience. And I got a couple hours in the morning. Typically, I'm up before everybody in my household for at least two hours, sometimes oh. three. So I get the opportunity to kind of just sit with some coffee and read. And right now, with so many VTC meetings that we're conducting, yeah. I can't spend any more time on the computer. I, right. I, I cannot spend any more time on my computer. It's I'm not going to spend 12 hours a day just going to meeting after meeting after meeting. So I have to disconnect electronically and go to you know manual stimuli because I can't. I cannot psychologically look forward to a day going. Man, I'm going to spend 
regardless, I'm going to spend six and a half, seven hours looking at a computer, looking at reports, looking at people's faces on the VTC. So I, I'm looking forward to the book because I'm like, ah, I got at least a couple of times to turn or a couple hours in the morning and turn pages awesome. before I have to look at some screens. You awesome. Know? No, I love hearing that. And the same thing, I, I have to read physically as well. Um, yeah. I'm reading some, some great ones over here for research for the fourth novel, which really explores the uh, legality, ethics, morality behind targeted assassinations. So pretty much something that's more closely associated with the Israeli government than it is ours, although obviously we've done it in the past and can just did a couple recently, um, right. but really explores that. And then uh, the foundation, uh, the, the problem that the protagonist needs to, uh, needs to deal with is an infectious disease is a bioweapon. Oh, wow. I started okay. researching this back in, in uh, talking to doctors that were involved in bioweapons programs, oh. researching the Soviet bioweapon program from the end right. of World War II up until uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and then what happened to all those after that. Uh, right. Our bioweapons program from the end of World War II up to today. Uh, and then the Japanese one that they developed before World War II, during World War II, and then used against China uh, during World War II. So uh, I was I was deep into all that stuff when this hit. So I was hypersensitive when uh, when COVID nineteen hit, just because I'd been involved in this infectious yeah. disease space for for months, doing all this research for the next novel. But point being, I can't listen to those and take notes. Like I have to be there, physically engaged, reading, highlighting, taking notes, putting yellow stickies on different pages, um, and that's that's the way I have to. To read because like you then most of the day even if i'm writing or whether it's emails or all the business stuff that goes along yeah. with this because uh, this is really an entrepreneurial venture and uh, and you guys were the model uh for me as i left the military uh and moved into a space that i didn't realize was an entrepreneurial type space i thought it was just writing and you send it yeah. to new york and maybe you do some editing and then you move on to your next thing well no it's all about uh everything else that goes along with any business uh to include yours obviously and the branding and the co-branding and the marketing and the social media and the budgets and everything you'd have to do for any business out there is part of writing. Uh, so a lot of my day is taken up doing that. So point being, I love to get into the pages of an actual book as well. I have to have that physical, physical feel, that visceral feel. So I'm turning yeah. the pages, taking those notes, highlighting, underlining, getting different ideas. And I can't do it all on a, on a screen. I just, I can't go, okay, business here. Okay. Now I'm just going to go to a new screen. I'm going to read for fun on the same device that I've been on doing business stuff all day. Like it just doesn't work right. for me. So I like to read as well. I like to enjoy the experience. It's different, you know. So it's for me, it's just a different experience. Uh, I read the majority of the books that I'm turning pages in right now are um, uh, my my daughter's my daughter's six, but she's reading at a, at a third grade level, which I'm I'm super happy with. But she's reading so well nice. now. I've had to up up my game in order to read comprehensive chapter driven books that aren't yeah. just, you know, C spot run. Sure. And, uh, that's the reading that I'm doing in the evening. So I know I'm going to be spending, you know, a half hour, 45 minutes turning pages, explaining words and things like that in the mornings though. I'm super fired up. Like I'm, I'm fired up to start my morning. It's your time, your time. Yeah, it's my time. And like you said, it's just different. The electronic interface, just different. The audio version of books is just a little bit different, but uh, where where do you want people to buy this? If they were to go buy this book today or when it comes out, where do you want them to buy it from? 
I'd like them to go to my website and hit mm -hmm. Savage Tour, and there's a yep. list of all the independent bookstores uh, okay. that have that signed book plate because yep. it helps them out big Got time. It. So cool. that's or that would be ideal. If it's not my book and people are just, just want to buy a book, Amazon's yeah. the easy button. But if you go to bookshop.org, they filter all their sales through independent bookstores. Oh, wow. So, so they're okay. helping. Yep. Simon and Schuster recently partnered with them. So any book that you want, I would go to them, take the effort to just set up another right. account. I mean, it's another account. Yep. Okay. Uh, it's right. a little, it's, it, once you set it up, it's just as easy as Amazon, but it helps those independent bookstores. So it helps those local businesses. Um, so Amazon's going to be just fine. Uh, but independent bookstores need our help. So I would send them, uh, to the list of independent bookstores on my website first and for every other book or for any of my uh, that you don't want the signed book plate for, for the first two, go to bookshop.org and, uh, and get it there. Cause it really helps out these small local businesses that are struggling. Awesome. Well, man, I can't thank you enough for spending an hour and some change with us on the phone Dude. or BTC. Yeah. Wish we could do it in person, but obviously that's off. <laughs> off limits. Well, the last time we yeah. saw each other was at Vegas and shot show, which was right before all this stuff. That is. Happened. Yeah, we we're starting to hear about it, and uh, and I, I'd been hunting actually with somebody here in Utah who's involved in the, the poultry industry, and he looks at China, uh, well, not well, he looks at China for a lot of different reasons, but uh, mostly for his business. But he was hearing these inklings in December of something brewing out there, and he was, he, and so uh, people were starting to talk about it at Shot Show, yeah. uh, and I think maybe we all didn't get it because we've been to Shot Show so many times, yeah. we built up a resistance by yeah. uh, the Shot Show crud, you know. Yep. So I think it's we're just and all those things we got in the military, who knows? Uh, but yeah, I think we're I think we're good. I think we're safe. Uh, we built up our antibodies by shaking so many hands at Shot Show over the years. I think we're good. We're good now. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, that was crazy. That was right before everything, right before the world changed. Cool. And uh, let everybody know where we can find you on social. Yeah, so uh, the website's officialjackcar.com, and there's a link there to Jack Car USA, which is the, the merch that all goes to help uh, COVID-19 response fund. Uh, and on all the socials, I am Jack Car USA. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. There is a Facebook account, but uh, it just reposts from Instagram because for a one-man shop, three was just too many. So uh, Instagram right. and Twitter are the, the main places that I interact with people. And I try to get back to everybody. I try to say thank you because I feel so fortunate that uh, people took a risk on a new author and then they liked it and they told a friend and I just am so appreciative. I try to get back to everybody. So if I miss you, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't intentional. It was just cause there's so many things coming in these days, but, uh, I look at those platforms really, that's my storefront. Like I don't have a general store in a small town USA where people could come in and ask for directions or buy a candy bar or, or a six pack or whatever it is. Right. Uh, my storefront is that social media. So I treat people, uh, the way I would, if I had an actual general store in small town USA and someone walked in to, to talk to me or yeah. ask me a question. So I try to treat people the, the same way on the, in the virtual space. So, uh, yeah, Jack Carr USA, appreciate everything. Thanks a lot, man. I would be a fan, even if I didn't know you were such a good guy. Uh, one of the, probably the hardest working author in, in the writing profession, I would say. So go check out Jack Carr, newest book, Savage Son. Thanks, I'm looking brother. forward to it, brother. I Thanks, appreciate man. it. Thank you guys so much for having me on, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll get out a field and uh, <laughs> sling some arrows soon. See Take you, care. Buddy.